The sermon text this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in, the, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Many of us probably have heard the song, Mary, Did You Know? It's played around Christmas all the time. and It's a song really just about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and asking her, Mary, did you know what your son would be like? Did you know that he would rule the nations? Questions like, did you know that he would... His, uh, he would save our sons and daughters. Did you know that he would be, um, that he would walk on water? And, and, and the whole song is just this series of questions. Did she know these things about her son? And it never really answers it. So that's why I'm here. I'm going to answer it for her. And I would simply say, yes, she knew. She knew a ton of what, and you just heard what she knew as she gave this song. It's a song, it's called the Magnificat. It's, the, it's a Latin word for magnify or exalt or praise. That what you heard read by Kimmy is Mary giving praise, giving thanks to God for bringing forth a son that would do this incredible work that no one could do. Now, this is the song of Mary. Luke has all kinds of songs that we're going to be looking at in Advent. Uh, Zechariah has a song, and Simeon has a song. The angels will have a song. And so we're going to look at these songs, because what these songs do is they help us understand why Jesus Christ has come. They help us understand the nature of Christmas. Uh, today, obviously, is Mary's song. Now, what we didn't read, which gave birth to the song, was this visitation by an angel. So if you were to later go back and read chapter 1, or the earlier part of chapter 1, which I would encourage you to do, you're going to find that an angel named Gabriel comes and, and visits Mary and says to Mary uh, that you will bear a son, and this son will be the Savior of the world. He'll be the Messiah. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. He's going to be called holy. These are divine names. You're bearing a Son that will be the Son of God. It's incredible. And the angel continues and says, the Spirit will overshadow you, and you will conceive and bring forth a Son that will declare the glory of God and bring about the change of all things. And so it's out of that revelation, that knowledge that she's been given from this angel from God that she busts off into this song, this song of praise. So we want to look at this song to better understand. You know, Christmas is such a, a fun time. It's a sweet time. People generally are happier 
at least for a short season of the year. We love it. It's a time of gift-giving, a time of gathering together. And we can easily be distracted from the monumental move that God did in our world by bringing forth this son. So there's a few things I want you to see that we'll be looking at. Number one, the song calls us to praise God that he gives mercy to the poor or it gives mercy to the humble. You're going to see that in 46 to 49. God is worthy of praise because he gives mercy to the humble. But secondly, you're going to see that he is worthy of praise as Mary is doing, exalting God because he brings justice to all people. He brings justice, and we'll look at that. And then, and then thirdly, we're going to see that she praises God because he's faithful. He's faithful to all of his promises. So we'll look at those three things. There's more in the song, but those will be what we look at. So look with me first at that she praises God for his giving grace or mercy to the humble. Look with me at 46 to 49. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And Mary is, is proclaiming her thankfulness for the favor of God. Right? God has chosen her to be the one to bring forth this child, this child that will transform the world. And that's why she says, all will call me blessed. I don't want you thinking there's something inherently valuable in Mary that makes her a unique human from the rest of us that, that, that we call her blessed. She has just been appointed by God, by grace, to do a work that was unique, uniquely given to her, and she gives thanks. You see, this song that she sings is very close to the song that is sung by Hannah in, chapter, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, the difference, though, which is amazing, Hannah's song is praising God for his victory over his enemies, but Mary's song is marked by a deep humility of her own brokenness needing a Savior to come. She's bringing forth the one that she needs. See, in Roman Catholic tradition, uh, they are taught the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that Mary was immaculately conceived. She was conceived without the stain of original sin. And so she doesn't need salvation as the rest. But she would tend to disagree. She says, I'm magnifying God, my Savior, literally in Greek, the God of my salvation. In other words, she sees her humble estate. That, that humble estate isn't that she's self-deprecating, no, she's humbled because of her own sin, and yet she's the one bringing forth this Messiah who's going to save us from our sins. It's an incredible truth that she's magnifying the God who is bringing forth one through her, which is a unique role, and yet one she needs desperately. But it's not just a song that Mary sings. It's a song we all sing. Look with me at verse 50. He says, and his mercy, this same mercy of a bringing a deliverer, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So for generations following Mary, we will be looking for mercy for those who fear him, for those who fear him. That's for us. If, if we fear him, the same mercy that Mary is exalting God over is ours. Now, do you fear him? 
I mean, I'm not asking, are you, a, are you scared of them or are you frightened by them? You know, to fear God in the Old Testament was an expression to have faith in God. And it makes sense, right? If you really believe in God, if you know who he is, you know his power, his glory, his magnificence, his creatorship, and that we are just his creation, that we would fear. We would fear his power and his glory. And it would what? It would humble us like Mary. You know, when we think of humility, I think we often think of just thinking less of ourselves. You know, kind of thinking ourselves, just don't think about yourself too much. No, in the scriptures, humility is simply having a right understanding of God as he has explained himself and believing that, and then having a right understanding of yourself and your brokenness. When you get those two things right, you'll be humble. You won't have to seek it. It will be right there at your front step. And this is what the humility that we're talking about. Do you fear God? Do you humble him? I don't want you to neglect the mercy of God. Mercy comes to those who fear him. Do you fear him? And are you not amazed at God's mercy to the humble? I mean, we live in such a self-promoting culture. Can you believe how God moves to the disenfranchised, the marginalized? Don't we see that in Jesus' ministry? I mean, doesn't he go to the shepherds? They were thought low of. Doesn't he go to the women and the sick and the children and the alien? Uh, doesn't he seek those that we would probably tend to cross the street to avoid? He seems to move. You know, many of us feel like we're the lowest rung on the spiritual ladder. Uh, we, we don't have anything to bring. We look around at other people and we think how low and how worthless and powerless that we are. And we fail to realize that humility doesn't come from looking around. Humility comes from looking at God. And as we look at God, we see his glory and power and we see his kindness and mercy. And we see that Jesus draws near to those who are humble and who are broken and who need him. This is really the early church. The early church was not a who's who collection of people. Uh, Corinthian church, for example. They were filled with those that we might not even associate with. You say, well, how do you know who was in the Corinthian church? Well, because Paul tells us in the first chapter. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So they weren't educated. They weren't learned people. Uh, they didn't have academic degrees. He says, not many of you were powerful, so they didn't have positions in society of any sort of power or position or prestige. He says, not many of you were, were of noble birth, so not many people came from blue blood. You know, you, don't, you didn't come from the right family. In fact, he goes on to say, he goes, God shows you what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So he's saying, you're seen as fools. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the description of the early church. Low, weak, despised, foolish. And yet, he, and yet he gives mercy to us. Jesus has come to give mercy to the low and the weak and the humble. And doesn't it change your view? I mean, I could tell you Proverbs 3, 4, he says, the humble, to the humble he gives favor. In Psalm 51, 17, he says that a broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. 
I mean, doesn't it kind of redefine your view of what humility is? I think about when Jesus is beginning his uh, sermon on the mount. He begins with the Beatitudes. This is kind of life in the kingdom, right? It's telling us what life in the kingdom will be like. And he begins with the first Beatitude, the gatekeeper of the entire kingdom. And it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they will be blessed. They will be happy who understand themselves in right relationship to God, are humbled, seeking mercy. Theirs is the kingdom. Listen, the proud and the arrogant, they're not exalting God. They're exalting themselves. They talk about themselves. You know, you can be with a person, and they just kind of have this stream of consciousness about their own experiences in life. That's not humility. Humility is we move right to praise of God. Look at what he's done in my life. Think about Jesus saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. See, to really understand Christmas, we have to understand ourselves. We have to understand who we are in relationship to God. And when we get that picture down, humility will be yours. You will humble yourself. I don't want you to neglect the mercy of God. I mean, some of you here may not even be Christian. You're here with your family. And you've never even heard the reality that it's through humility, it's humbling ourselves before God, that he gives mercy. He draws close to those that recognize, I have nothing to bring but my sin, and I need the mercy of God. I need to be reconciled to a creator. So that's what she's giving thanks, that she, in her humble estate, to her one has come with mercy. And that's an offer to generation to generation, to all those who fear. That's an offer to us today. But the second thing you see in this psalm, or really a song of praise, is that he brings justice to all people. In other words, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to reverse the values and the morals of all our culture. He's going to change the world upside down. Look with me at 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Do you see the reversal going on? Do you see the challenge that God brings to conventional wisdom? Do you see how he's upending the moral and the social and the financial structures of our world. The things that we view life through, he turns upside down. He makes them, and you notice it's in the past tense. And a lot of scholars want to think, well, this means that he's, you know, speaking about the nature of how God was faithful to Israel. I don't think so at all. It's called a prophetic past. It's a literary device where the author puts it in the past tense because of its certainty to come in the future. Kind of like when when the best team takes the field. And someone says, well, they've already won the game. They've already won the game. He's putting it in the past tense because this is speaking to the ministry that the Messiah will bring. He's going to change. He's going to revolutionize our world. Not like a French revolution. It's a different type of revolution. Uh, Look at the moral revolution he brings when he says that Jesus will scatter the proud. He will scatter them. I mean, you think about the moral revolution here. You know, the moral elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're proud in their righteousness. 
They're sufficient in themselves and what they've been able to accomplish in growing in holiness before God. And yet Jesus takes them on. And he rebukes them and he serves the sinners. He rebukes Simon. And he pays attention to a prostitute weeping on his foot. Who would do that? I mean, he's turning our views upside down about what makes morality. It isn't climbing up you know, some moral ladder of righteousness by our striving. No, it's, it's a step down into humility, recognizing, no, we're, we're the lepers. I'm the prostitute. That's why I need them. He brings about a social revolution. I mean, think about it for a minute. He tears down the mighty. He brings them down from their thrones, and he exalts the humble. He exalts the lowly. I mean, he walked right by palaces to eat with Zacchaeus. Nobody else would eat with him. He ignores the palaces and the powers and those of prestige, and he moves right to the broken and the lowly to lift them up out of their sin and shame. That's incredible. I mean, God is not impressed by our power structures, by our positions. He's just not impressed. It's a kingdom that doesn't have room for that. Our human power structures, kingdom doesn't have room for that. No, it's for the lowly. It's for the broken. He lifts them up out of the ash heap, he says. He brings about a financial revolution. Look, the rich in this world, they're going to be hungry. They're not going to be satisfied. But he'll feed the poor. He'll feed the poor. I mean, think of it. Didn't we see this in Jesus' ministry? When the rich man came to him and said, I want to follow, and Jesus says, we've got to do the commandments, and these commandments, he said, I've already done those. Well, then <clears throat> sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I can't do that. And he went away, what? Sorrowful. Here, here the rich, those esteemed, walk away unsatisfied. And yet to the poor who follow him into the wilderness, there's plenty of fish, plenty of bread for everybody. I can feed you. I can care for you. I mean, to those of us as we're resting in our finances or securing our material kingdoms, and <clears throat> that's gaining the attention and the efforts of our, of, our, of our lives, he's saying, no, look over here. It's a different kingdom that he's bringing. And we see this in his ministry. <clears throat> we see it in the way he's born. He wasn't born in a palace. He didn't have a retinue of people of prestige. He was born to a family that was poor, that didn't have a home, that was on a journey. Nobody was there, a few animals and some shepherds, no fanfare, no fancy, nothing. I mean, he shows us in his birth, this is the kind of kingdom I'm bringing. I'm going I'm to bring justice to the broken and the weak. I mean, I mean, doesn't this reversal cause us to pause? Doesn't it cause us to pause about how we look at people, how we pursue things in life? I mean, you think about your own understanding of your morality. We can so easily slip into this kind of older brother mentality, this kind of self-serving righteousness of look at who I am and what I've become, failing to walk in the humility that we should all walk in, or, or the social inversion that he makes. We can tend to be with just people like ourselves. We kind of clump around in people that look just like us. We don't have room in our lives to bust up those circles and to bring in those that are different than us, that are probably more difficult to get along with, different backgrounds that work. We have to work harder to make connections with them. 
because they don't have our histories, they don't have our backgrounds, they don't have our education. But doesn't it challenge, doesn't it cause us to, or the finances? You know, we're people that have grown comfortable with what we have. We don't want to lose it. And we've got to work and strive to maintain it. And yet he's saying, give it all away. It's a different kingdom. You've got to see that. Doesn't it cause us to pause? In fact, some of the things that we strive for in terms of morality and social positioning and financial independence, these are the very things that threaten our relationship to the kingdom. He said to the people of Laodicea, he says, you say I'm rich. I have no need of anything. He says, I see you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's, that's not what they expected to hear. And that's not what they were thinking. So it, causes, it might be a point of repentance for us. It might be a point of us thinking, how do I view morality? Do I, see, do I view morality based upon who lives around me? Or do I base it upon God? And it may change our social dynamic. Who do I spend most of my time with? Does it involve the people that Jesus hung around, that he came to? And my financial understanding and my, my trust and wealth, does it challenge us at all? And do you not see the beauty of justice here? The tearing down the mighty to lift up the lowly? I mean, we all want justice. I mean, all of us have that sense of wanting wrongs righted. Now, many of us, all of us, I imagine, have at some point suffered some form of injustice. I'm sure not as much as so many of our world have. But we have in the marketplace, somebody steps over you in the job or says something or you don't get credit or sin your family. Everybody faces a degree of injustice. And we all feel that sense of, I want it made right. It's something fundamental to us. It's self-evident. You don't have to be a Christian to feel that. I mean, a person who's a full-blown atheist, who's a naturalist, and they just say, listen, we are just here by a random series of events. Well, you know what? When they face injustice, they want some order. They're not willing to live with the randomness of, well, that just happens in a random world. No, they want order and they want justice. Kids, kids don't have a problem with justice. You get a bunch of kids and you have them watch, you know, 101 Dalmatians. Just go to a Disney movie. 101 Dalmatians. When Corella DeVille gets blasted off the cliff and dies, nobody's saying, ah, she should be given another chance. I mean, really, she had a bad go at life. You don't know who her dad was. You don't know the daddy problems that she had. You don't know this or that or the other. Nobody minds her facing judgment for her life. He brings justice. You say, well, where's the justice? The justice he brought first was justice between God and us. Jesus brings justice. He brings justice by by offering himself to bear our sins. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is a picture of justice. Here, Jesus, one without sin, but like us, has come to offer himself to bear our sin, that God would bring a just judgment on Jesus for all the things that we've done, thought, wanted to do, but maybe couldn't do. And God has brought judgment on him. Because God is just. God does punish sin. And he's punished the Son for our sins. But God's also the justifier of those with faith in Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans. 
This is the beauty of the gospel, that when we come to Christ by faith, by trust, that he is our substitute, then justice is rendered, and you know what? We now have peace with God through faith in Christ. As our faith, as our trust is rooted in the one who has come to die for us, justice is served, we have peace with God, we're now reconciled, and we can now be adopted as his children. That's the justice that he came to bring. I mind you, there will be an ultimate justice that comes. There is no doubt. Every wrong will be made right on that final day. And I know you're thinking right now of your family squabbles, the troubles you have in life, the injustices you've faced, the gossip that's been said about you, the hardships. Those will all be made right. But Jesus first comes to bring about a justice so that God can be the justifier of those with faith in Christ. Jesus is our is the answer to the guilt of the world before God. So we see in this song, that's why she's, she sees what he will do. And she rejoices and exalts in God, my Savior, because he's provided one who will bring a justice, a way back into the garden, a way back into the presence of God. Not as guilty people with heads hanging low, but as forgiven children who are adopted and loved and are welcomed back into the Father's presence. But then third, you see in this song that she exalts God because he's faithful to his promises. Look with me at 54 and 55. He says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, what, what does this mean? You know, here is Mary, this teenage woman, going back and speaking about, in remembrance of his mercy, the, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring. I think what Mary's doing is Mary is rejoicing at the announcement of this child because this child is going to fulfill the promise made originally to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham that you will you will have a people, and you will have a land, and you will be a blessing to the nations. In other words, the nations, the world, will come to your offspring to find me. To think about the context, we're in Genesis 12 when the promise is made. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, <clears throat> you might need to reread those, the prologue to Genesis, uh, they are a testimony of our breathtaking ability to self-destruct and to just be unable to fix anything in life. And do you know what? In the middle of that story of our breath, breathtaking self-destruction, we get a do-over. We get a do-over after the flood in Genesis 8. And do you know what we do over and over again? Is we ruin ourselves. Humanity, there is no inherent goodness that we're going to somehow be able to climb out of the pit. We see it in the fall in Genesis 3. We get a do-over in Genesis 8. And we slip right back into pride and arrogance before God. And so God comes to Abraham. He says, through your offspring, the nations will be saved. The nations will be blessed. And Mary sees in her womb the answer. Now you say, well, he's talking about offspring here. He's talking about the people of Israel. No, go back and read the Old Testament then. Because you can read the testimony of the Old Testament is simply a... Um, just a litany of failure. The people of Israel, 
They were called the servants of God, but they failed completely. But then you notice towards the end in the prophets that there will come a servant. We see him in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53. You see there to be a singular servant who will come. And this singular servant will be the fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise. Not just the promise made to Abraham, the promise made to David as well. Remember, David was promised a son who would have an eternal kingdom. Those promises together are the Messiah. And Mary sees the one in my womb is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and to David. He will save his people from the ravages of the sin. He will come into the wilderness where we are, and that's a wilderness, that's the, that's the picture in the Old Testament of being away from God, you're in a wilderness. He comes into our wilderness, and he leads us back. And that's what he's come to do, and that's what Mary's saying. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians. Listen to what he says in Galatians. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is saying the promise made to Abraham is Christ. That's what Mary's saying here. But it's not just to those. This is why the time of God's plan through ethnic Israel is over. there's, There's now the people of God. It's called the church or the new Israel. There's no, new, there's no need for a new temple. Why? Because we're the temple of God. God doesn't go back to shadows. The shadows were pointing to something. Now that Christ has come, he's the people. He is the king of a new people. A new people, not by ethnicity, but by faith. And that's what you see at the end of Galatians when he says, and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to the promise, not driven by ethnicity, but by driven by faith in the Son of God who has come to save. God kept his promise of bringing forth a Savior. And that's what Mary is exalting over. So we can rejoice over God's faithfulness. But I know that many of us actually struggle with trusting God's faithfulness, particularly when we're in trials, trials or difficulties. I mean, maybe, we're, maybe you're suffering right now. Maybe it's an issue related in your marriage, your family, your finances, or health. You've been given bad news. You can't seem to reconcile with a friend. God's not answering your prayers. And, and we think, well, God, if you're all-powerful, why can't you bring immediate relief? Why would you delay? And in his delay, we begin to question, is he really faithful? Oh, I know he did this and that, but I don't... You know, we begin to look at God with... Sometimes a sideways glance. I want you to consider Mary for just a moment. You know, Mary is told that she's going to have the Messiah. She now is pregnant, but she doesn't have a husband. She's in a society that will look down upon that scorn, embarrassment, shame. She'll be whispered about the balance of her life. Well, we don't know if that's Joseph's son, really. We're not sure. You know, she was seen as an up-and-coming young woman that really knew the things of, eh, you know, she has history. She knew she'd be facing the scorn. And you know what? She didn't have anything proof positive. She just had a baby in her womb. I mean, that was it. And she could still magnify God because she knows he's faithful. 
He's going to come through. This is the beauty of the incarnation. Jesus Christ comes not to fix everything immediately. That's what we want. We all want the pink pill. We all want the immediacy of relief. And yet the incarnation is like planting seeds. They're going to come up and take over the garden with beautiful flowers. But it takes time. We don't want to judge God's faithfulness in the middle of what he may be doing in the delay. So, I mean, you, you think about it, like walking up to Michelangelo, or Michelangelo and halfway through as he's sculpting David, eh, it doesn't look that good to me. Well, just wait. There's, there's his faithfulness. That's what she's exalted. Can you exalt with me that God is yet faithful even in the midst of perhaps we're in the middle of his work in your soul right now? So you see this song of praise. She's praising God that he gives, he gives mercy to the humble. May I encourage you not to neglect the mercy of God. What I mean by that is for those of you who are uncertain of your relationship with God, you're uncertain, humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Seek his mercy for the salvation of your own souls. But we also see she praises God that he will bring justice, both in his body, reconciling God and men through faith, but also in ultimate justice. And and then thirdly, she praises God for his faithfulness. Folks, we're in the middle of many things in our lives right now. And I'll tell you, don't for a minute think that God's not doing a hundred things in the midst of the trials and the struggles you're going through. Don't abandon holding fast in faith to God. So what do we do? We have Advent upon us now. We've got a few weeks left to Christmas. We're going to be distracted like crazy over the next 20-odd days. And so, so what do we do? Well, I would ask you to continue. We're going to gather together each week. Let's magnify God together. You know, let, when we get together, let's make the efforts, even though family's in town, I don't care, bring the family. But, but we want to magnify him together. Magnify, we think of like magnifying glass. It makes something small big, like an ant. You look at it and you put it under a magnifying glass and it gets huge. We don't magnify God as if we're making him bigger, but understanding the character of God makes him bigger. He's enlarged in our minds. We come to a bigger understanding of God is what he's saying here. You you meditate as she did on his, on his mercy and on his grace on his power, on his strength. Do you notice, Mary, you know, a lot of scholars want to argue that Mary didn't write this song. It's too drenched in Scripture for a young teenage woman to know these things and to be able to put it together. They don't understand the proper training that these young Hebrews experienced. Studying the song of Hannah, learning the Scriptures, knowing about God that you could pull it together. That four-day journey from when the angel spoke to her and she got to Elizabeth's home, meditating on all that God is, bringing forth this kind of scriptural worship. May I encourage you that during this time, uh, let's let our worship not be simply about what we currently need, but about the character of God. Maybe for a moment, that's really the one, uh, a beautiful position of the church is sometimes to consider the machinery of our world and the chaos of it, it's irrelevant to what we do in here. That's why we don't preach politically in here. We try to go after every social justice issue. In some ways, it's irrelevant. 
we're here to understand who God is. Now, it obviously has implications for outside the doors of this church, but it starts with God and understanding his glorious character. So Carol used to do this, and of course she trained the kids and trained me to do it as well. When she can't sleep, she just goes through every letter of the alphabet, and she thinks about a characteristic of God beginning with every letter. A, he's almighty. B, he's benevolent. He's good. C, he's compassionate. D, he delights in his saints. E, he's excellent. F, he gives us favor. G, he's great. I don't want to go on because I haven't gone through the alphabet in a long time, but let's just stop there. And, and I'll be flipping over in bed. I can't sleep. And she goes, have you done your alphabet? No, I haven't done my alphabet, you know. And then I go. But it's a beautiful way to meditate on the characteristics of God leading us to a deepened worship of God. That's what we want to do. That's why we gather, gather together to worship him, to magnify him. But, but secondly, we're gathering together to sing. You know, Jeremy and the team and the media team in the back, they, they do an excellent job for us. They're not prepping you for the sermon. It's part of worship to lift our voices and to declare both to God. Sometimes, a lot of times, he'll look at me. I won't be singing. I want to hear you sing to me. I want to hear you declare to me as I declare to you the praises of God. Well, singing, you get to declare to me the praises of God. I love hearing you sing. And I think you've been singing louder. But, but singing is part of it. This is a song we're studying. So many times I think we hold back, well, that's not my style song. I don't like that song that much. I'm not going to say. What are we doing with that? I mean, the songs are giving God the honor that he's still. And then, and then thirdly, I would say, so we're going to magnify him this month. We're going to be worshiping him in song, and we're going to be thinking about the music we're singing. Jeremy does a great job. How, do, how can I get this song to advance the message in this text? That's what he's doing. And we're, trying to, we're trying to make the whole, the whole service kind of thematic so that you can remember it more and enjoy it more. The third thing I would encourage us to do is remember, to remember the faithfulness of God. In fact, that's going to lead us right to the table here, to remember. The table is really God's gift to us to help us remember these things, right? And Jesus said in Luke 22, he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So what Jesus is saying is, when you eat the bread, and when you drink the cup, you are to be remembering God's faithfulness in giving us one to save. We're to remember that. That that when the bread is broken, his body was broken, A visual reminder to you that those sins that you may still be carrying, no, he paid for them. You won't have to face them. So let that move, not with license to live any way you want, but let it give birth to exalting and magnifying him like Mary. 
And, and the cup that you will drink out of? New covenant. No longer the blood of bulls and goats. It has to be repeated every year. No, there's a new covenant in the blood of the very Son of God that is permanent forever. God now related to us as Father. But this, this looking back with the bread and the wine is also calling us to look forward. Do you notice he says, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now he brought the kingdom, right? In Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom has already come, but he's speaking about the kingdom in its fullness. There's a, there's a feast coming where he says he will gird himself about with a towel and serve us at that feast. That's the Messianic feast. This table is a weekly remind, or monthly reminder of there is a day. That's why we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. Is there a longing in your heart to see him? Or is life so sweet that it can't get better? You know, the, the table is a reminder. This is not what life's about. This is a temporal life. It's brief. It's short. It's momentary. The table is a reminder that there comes a day. I pray it not be long where all the wrongs will be made right. Handel's Messiah. Every valley will be raised. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. That's what this table is reminding us. He will come in glory. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts right now and and ask God for wisdom. Ask God for grace. Ask God for, for clarity that you might be strengthened and changed by these words.